Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from Rev Road and Jake McCarg from CB Vault. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind the scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. All right. Well, we're super excited to be here today on the Midnight Founders Podcast. I'm AJ Rounds with Rev Road with my co-host here, Jake McCarg with Central Bank, CB Vault. Heck yeah. And we're excited to have Mr. John Keller from The Red List here. The Red List, yeah. I've been excited to have you on this podcast for a while. This is going to be exciting. Well, thanks for having me. This is John, just so you all know, John is one of those guys that um, anything he touches turns to gold. So I try to throw as much things in his hand as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> Shake hands with him as often as possible. It's amazing, <laughs> yeah. And another cool fact, we just got back from Peru a couple weeks ago. Yeah, he was there with fun. us at our Rev Road uh, Investors Trip. And um, something so impressive, uh, his wife, Lenita, six and a half months pregnant, takes up through Wanapichu and leads the pack all the way up the mountain, made it to the top, no problem. <laughs> no one quit on that trail because they're like, if, if Lenita can do it, we're doing it, you know? And she was a trooper. She was incredible. That was a lot of fun. That was uh, something she really wanted to do. She's was working with her trainer to get ready for that. So she did it and that was fun. Oh, that's cool. a great trip. So fun to get to know you guys better on that trip and, and everyone else. So Yeah, likewise. Thanks. So cool. Well, John, uh, today we're here to talk about kind of your entrepreneur journey and how you got there, some of the stumbling blocks and the successes you've had along the way. But first, tell us, give us the 30-second pitch on the Red List. What are you doing and what problem are you solving? Yeah, so Red List is a SaaS platform. It's a B2B company. We're really focused on helping to tear down the silos between operations, maintenance, and safety inside of a company, and also to kind of provide a platform where outside vendors, equipment owners, or even uh, equipment suppliers can come together in a collaborative environment to solve the problems around their biggest pieces of equipment. So our customers are the types of companies where their lifeblood is maybe a really expensive equipment line, and if that goes down, then their business pauses and they're losing money all over the place. So our, we have, uh, our customers are companies like Georgia Pacific. So they're making all the, so if you get an Amazon package, it's got a box made by Georgia Pacific probably. And um, so they're our customer. We also have ExxonMobil. So from their midstream kind of the refining side, as well as the downside, the, the, the downstream, uh, kind of where they're working with the lubrication and fuel distribution. Um, we also work with other mines like Kinross and uh, a lot of brands you probably haven't heard of, but uh, cool. Dart. Like, so if you see a, you know, if you're drinking from a red Solo cup, like that's, cool. those guys are our customers. So. so large, large companies then. So a lot of them are large. We have a lot of medium and small ones mm. as well, but um, I would say the definitely those are the larger brands that most people would recognize. Most people don't recognize yeah. uh, manufacturing brands. Cool. Are they mainly mainly manufacturing companies, or uh, let's we'll say that. So again, if you think about anything that's got a really expensive piece of equipment, so a lot of manufacturing companies, but also mining companies, and, mm. and there's a lot of similarities between mining and manufacturing. But what about like a crane company? Crane company. We have a lot of crane companies as well. So it's a very expensive piece of equipment. Uh, Wagstaff Crane here in the valley. They were actually kind of our like our bond our. our initial customer like our we call them a guinea pig sometimes they've been really patient with us but we so they use us for maintenance they use us for dispatching for building jobs uh pretty much 
order to cash and then fulfillment of that order, uh, we, they use Redlist for that. So if you see a big Wagstaff crane running down the freeway, they, somebody probably logged into Redlist to find out where to go with it. Very cool. So, so John, that's what you're doing now. Sounds like you're having great success and we'll probably get into that in a minute, but tell us your first foray into entrepreneurship. Where did this all start? This entrepreneur bug? That's a great question. I would say, you know, like I, in high school, Okay, I'm gonna back up just a little bit. Sure. I'll tell you, like when I first was like a little kid, my parents were like, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" I was always saying something that got the biggest reaction, right? Like it was like, "I want to be a brain surgeon," and everybody, "Oh man, you're so smart, I want to be a brain surgeon." I was like, "Oh, that's a great reaction." <laughs> so I was, I want to be a brain surgeon for a while, and then oh, that feels so good. <laughs> exactly. I love when people say that. So when I got to be like 14, I started like learning about this thing called an attorney, you know, and I was like, "Oh." paid to argue and they got and I was a pretty stubborn and obstinate teenager and so I was like man I think I'm made to be an attorney and I remember I told my dad one day I was like I want to be an attorney and my dad's like oh you don't want to be an attorney my dad's like hardcore engineer like um he's the son of a union steel guy so very much kind of get 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 your job and stick with it and do a good job you know excel in your job and you'll do well in life and so when I told him I want to be an attorney he's like oh John attorneys those are like the bottom of the pond they're like they're just like the worst thing you could imagine they're just taking advantage of people they thrive off of conflict and these types of things like, did you learn all the attorney jokes at that oh, time I learned too? all the attorney, okay. the attorney jokes and i was like yeah, i'm gonna be an attorney this is great um and then i took a my junior year i took a deca class right and like my first experience at all in any sport sort of business and um you know i got to compete uh nationally and like had just this experience like oh man business can take you places i never traveled very many places growing up and so to go and compete in this little business plan competition or whatever i did and to do well in it it was like really fun so i came back I'm like i'm gonna be a businessman like i'm i'm gonna get into business so i told my dad i said dad i am gonna be a i know what i'm gonna do i know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna be a businessman and my dad stops looks at me and says john are you sure you don't want to be an attorney like, that's a great career. You could make plenty <laughs> you of found, money. You could, like, do all these things. And I was, like, funny. I was like, wow, I didn't realize. <laughs> you found something he liked, is, is he liked than less than an attorney. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe attorney. it. Oh, we should have just stayed there. Attorney yeah. was a good bar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, so I went and so, and I always, like, always wanted to kind of do something that made a difference in the world, right? So I was always, I uh, wanted to figure out how to get into some, maybe some nonprofit stuff, some philanthropy. Philanthropy always seems so romantic and so exciting to me. So um, when I went, so I was kind of thinking I was going to get into business. And actually, believe it or not, like my game plan in high school was like, I'm going to get a job at Taco Bell because I was like by my house and I like Taco Bell. <laughs> Seven Layer Burrito is an excellent choice for 1 a.m. in the morning. Shout out to Taco Bell, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I was like, I'm going to go ahead. I want to, I'm going to get a job in some corporation somewhere and work my way to the top. Learn Spanish, learn other languages, like figure it out and uh, and just kind of go get an MBA one day and do the very corporate route. That's what I thought I was going to do. I served a mission uh, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Bangkok, Thailand, right? And that was unlike anything I was expecting ever. And I was always kind of looking like, where could you go to make a difference? And as you, you know, you're out there trying to serve people, trying to get to know people and see what actually works in these kind of, uh, in a country that's really working hard to put it together and increase the standard of living for everybody. And no matter where I went in these countries, like um, you'd find groups trying to help and not doing a great job. Like it was really tough. Lots of 
nonprofits and lots of government programs and lots of, I mean, you want to see a scary place, spend some time in a Thai hospital, right? Like that's like, and that's like, there's a lot of people trying to help make it a great place and it's tough. But no matter Jake, where, you're laughing. Have you experienced that too? <laughs> no, I just can only imagine. <laughs> no, I, that, yeah, that yeah. sounds terrible. I mean, it's uh, just, there's some tough environments. And, but no matter, and I, you go to some very, very remote, remote places and uh, I could never find like a solid, amazing, like program, social program that was making a difference. But I could always find like a, an ice cold bottle of Coca-Cola. <laughs> yep. So good. So refreshing right there, wherever you feel like oh, I need a Coke right now. Boom. There's a fridge with a Coke in it. For like, for 50 cents. Cheaper than a bottle of water. A quarter, a quarter, yeah. yes. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. and so I was like, honestly, so, so inspired by the fact that I could find Coke anywhere in the world and that it gave me this refreshing moment, right? Um, kind of an oasis in the desert, so to speak. And so, so I was like, man, I want to figure out how to do business in a way that can make a difference. And so after, after my mission, I was like, maybe I'm, I think the corporate route, I met some other you know, missionaries out there that had a similar kind of hunger and zeal to figure out how to do business. And uh, they were, it was awesome. I, I, I give a lot of credit. I owe a lot of credit to the different people I've met in my life that opened my heart and my mind of what I was maybe capable of. And so there was this like this belief that maybe I should do something more than just plug into a wall somewhere and figure out how to be a power executive. Maybe I should see how to grow something, build something from scratch, you know. So I came back and got involved in I started a little nonprofit, and that was a great experience. And started some companies kind of before I graduated from school. Always was doing something, and uh, gratefully, I've I've you know I've won more than I've lost. I have lost. I wish it was gold for everything, you know, as you say, everything touches to the gold. I'm like, oh man, I'm thinking of all the mud balls I've made in my life, you know. Um, but uh, definitely been I've been really I've been lucky. I've been blessed, and. Uh, it's been an awesome journey trying to figure out how do you, how do you really make a difference while making money? They're, they shouldn't be mutually exclusive things. Like you should be able to make money and make the world a better place. Um, and I think that businesses and entrepreneurship is an incredible vehicle for that. And so that's kind of what, is what drives me. So um, that's really cool, John, that you say that. And I think, you know, there's a couple of different philosophies in the world. One is that, like you said, the nonprofits can change the world, but but as you said, many of them are not run well or efficient or they're really not meeting the mission that they set out to do, right? Mm -hmm. So um, what you alluded to, which I completely agree with, is, is entrepreneurship where you're helping people, you know, build income and revenues for themselves to be self-sufficient is one of the greatest ways to change the world, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of my you touched on that. Yeah, like one of my first little ventures was a company called Worldwide Book Drive. And and uh, what was interesting about this company is we'd gather surplus books from anywhere we could get them. We'd recycle, resell, or donate the books. And, you know, like we were moving millions of pounds of books. And what was interesting about it is when you talk to somebody and you'd, they'd find out you were capturing the books and, and we'd tell them that we, they said, well, are you a nonprofit? Well, no, we're not a nonprofit. Oh, then you must be like, stealing these books you must just be doing something bad with the books because you're not a nonprofit. you need to be a nonprofit, and then you'll do that and <laughs> and i'd go and talk in the for-profit community and say hey guys we're we got this little business that's growing we think we can scale it out it takes a little bit of dollars and time to put the books the surplus books that don't fit in the right places to put those in the in the right markets like overseas or in inner city or wherever it takes energy and time to put it there so we don't have as big of profit margins as we could 
Um, but we're actually making a difference. And a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, you're wasting your talent. You should just scale a big, big, just make as much profit as you can in this company. I'm like, well, there really is some, there's, there's a middle place in there sometimes. Like you, you can make an impact with a business. And, and frankly, that little business near the end was, was making a good living for me and ended up uh, helping to pay for our, my first house, right? So it was kind of like, I mean, there, there's opportunity everywhere. It's not, it's not mutually exclusive, even though in our minds we put it that way. Yeah, it's easy to just put things in a box of like the way you understand. And so, you know, both of those groups probably understood it a certain way. And that's how they were interpreting, you know, the best way for your path forward. Um, you said something interesting uh, that I want to touch on. Um, you said that you've kind of hit it more often than you've missed. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is? Um, what characteristic or trait or, uh, you know, what thing that you do that has helped you be successful? That's a great question. I would, I would have to say that it's probably at bats, right? It's like, it's actually swinging at the ball. Like, um, if you get your butt kicked really hard and then you stop because you're like, Oh, I got my butt kicked. Maybe I'm not cut out for this then you're not going to have any more opportunities to actually do it again. Yeah. And you won't, you won't have an opportunity to win because you've already given up. And so I think that, uh, I think that really just not giving up and then being willing to take a failure and look at it as an ex education cost. And so try again, kind of the same thing. Say, I want to try this again, but I'm not going to make those same mistakes, but I'm going to try it again and just tweak it a little bit. Yeah, you're only going to catch fish if you've got a hook in the water. You have to have a hook in the water, you know? Yeah. So true. So true. I love that. I also liked what you said earlier, too, um, about you give credit to all those people in your life that you've met that have kind of given you wisdom or nuggets of wisdom along the way. Um, case in point, we, you know, we sat down together at your office yesterday, and you talked about how you were trying to crack the nut for email marketing because most times you get 1% to 2% click-through rate, if that. It's terrible. You talked with an expert in the space, and now you're getting upwards of 35, 40% click-through rate on your yeah. email campaigns. And I think that's that's a tribute to you to go and find the people that are experts and then listen to them and incorporate that in your businesses. It's really cool. No, I, I, I think there's like, you know, we all want to believe we did it ourselves, right? We all want to be like, oh, man, we're the man in the ring. You know, we're the, we're the person who pulled it off, but... Um, I think it was Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell's book. It was probably Tipping Point is the one that comes to mind when he talks about the 10,000-hour rule and he talks about that everybody's really a product of some interaction with somebody else, some mentor, some family member, a friend, a random stranger that you meet. Um, I really feel like uh, you cannot take somebody out of an experience equation like you know we have these motor neurons in our brain right so and if you're a normal functioning human being you're you're more your motor neurons work like i just smile at aj first of all aj smile you can't not <laughs> smile back okay like like aj's extra fires your, your motor neurons but the concept is we have, vibes, right? <laughs> that's right exactly so you have these so we when somebody shows we see something painful we experience something exciting like we watch a movie about it. Like our brain lights up as if we were experiencing it. Like, I mean, that is, that's so deep in some sense, like your experience and everybody else's experience is all part of a shared experience. Like the very fact how our biology is wired, you can't take someone else's experience away from you because it is your experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. So philosophically, like fundamentally, 
I'm come to this point in my life where I realize you just can't separate it out. Like I'm really blessed. I'm really lucky. I got a lot of things. Yes, bad things happen. Yes, it's hard. But man, I got so many people that I need. To, I should be able to give credit to. I should be giving credit to. And in some sense, you also have to kind of say, well, maybe that also means I don't know everything. And it's okay. You're, I'm not built to know everything. I'm not supposed to know everything. So finding people who are really better than me or better than you or whoever's better at something, let's see if we can't find a way to, to make a larger sum of the parts, right? Let's, if, I, if somebody knows something way better than me and they can move the needle and I, I just have to help give that person the opportunity to move the needle, then let's do that. And if it's, if it was them and not me, like I still win bigger. Who right? cares? Yeah. So cool. So you, uh, you grew up with an engineer dad and a farmer mom, yeah. and I'm sure that you took something from those experiences or that upbringing that kind of created who you are today. Um, so I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that, but also a follow-up question. What are you doing as a dad to kind of foster that in your kids? There's a lot to unpack in that one. Um, so my mom and dad, very different personalities too, super analytical. My dad is very analytical. It's like, you know, if there's Engineer. an equation for it, I mean, literally we're talking pocket protector with like four pens and a piece <laughs> of folded graph paper. <laughs> He's like always ready to go. He is like, and he is. The image is coming to my mind. Oh, he is. My uh, wife's dad's an engineer. There you go. He has a graph where the. The volleyball posts are in the grass. <laughs> oh my yeah, god! Save on exactly. the computer, measures wow. it out every time. Oh, see, that's, <laughs> that's perfect. Intense. Yeah, it's amazing, and it's it's. And my dad, honestly, I didn't really realize it growing up, but my dad is one of the most reliable people that I've ever met. It's like as you get older in life, you meet a lot of people who make a lot of commitments, and uh, very few people actually keep all the commitments they make to you, right? And it was a very, it was a rarity if my dad ever missed something that he committed to. And if he ever, like, I'll take you there or I'll buy you the shoes or I'll, if he's going to do something, like, you just kind of, it was just going to get done. Now, you might have been in a fight with him. You might not have been getting along great with him at the time, but he'd still always deliver. Like, he was always reliable. That's a cool trait. That's a really great characteristic. I think it's an amazing characteristic because I never, I like, guess I've gone up in life and made my own commitments and missed my own commitments and realized, my gosh, I have, I, my dad would I, not be proud. <laughs> <laughs> my dad would not be proud. So, uh, so I've definitely, that's something, if you make a commitment, you should keep a commitment, right? Is kind of, and that's hard. And I'm, even as I say that, I'm sure that somebody can point to like 10 commitments that I failed on, you know? Like, it's okay. You have a month like, probably until this will come out. So you can go like patch all those commitments. you made. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure by then I'll have <laughs> twice as many <laughs> but we'll definitely like when i talk to my kids like one of the things is i definitely want my kids to hold me to that standard right so when i tell my kids something i guess very common say, but dad you said we could do xyz I'm like okay did i really say that like, you said walk over it. exactly it. you said but we'll do it and if i say i'm gonna if i say hey i'm gonna run to bed right now i'll come and see you before you go to bed you know um i i want to make sure i do that and there are a few occasions I've had to go in and I take a picture because they're already asleep. I'm like, I was there last night. I made it. <laughs> I was actually there. Uh, but for the most part, I think that's one. Right? So for my dad, I definitely learned uh, make a commitment, keep a commitment. So and that's hard. And I, I'm learning it. Let's just say I'm still learning it because I don't think I'm perfect at that. 
And then for my mom, my mom was very much as a, you know, she grew up, her mom passed away when she was like 14. Her dad passed away when she was like just barely turned 16. And she was kind of the mother of the home. So she was very much, she's always been a mom. I think she was, I mean, her mom was sick from the time she was like six. So I think my mom was always a mom. And uh, while, while the analytical world of my dad was never really like, um, I didn't ever, I didn't feel a ton of love per se all the time growing up, you know? I, I look now, my dad has a different love language, right? So I was always loved. I know I was always loved. I didn't know it when I was a teenager, right? I didn't know it when I was um, a younger does any yeah. of them know? Do, I, do you anyone? wonder, right? <laughs> yeah. But this is my mom. My mom was like love. My mom was love personified. Like she was like, my dad might just kind of like uh, lay down the law really hard. My mom would always make sure she spent lots of time talking to me and telling me she loved me. And that usually meant like making sure that I prayed with her and read scriptures with her and like all these things. It was, But I knew she did it because she really did love me. She loved me. Like I don't think growing up, I ever questioned my mom's love. I remember one time we we're at some big business launch and it was one of these like, you know, I should be so proud of myself moments because we just launched this business thing. And I remember hearing my mom talk about, you know, it was good to see me doing something good because I was such a rascal growing up or something. <laughs> and I remember looking like, wow, I never knew you felt that way. You just <laughs> loved me the whole time. So anyway, it's That's kind of funny. So my mom, so with my kids, um, I really am trying, like I want my kids if I have one goal for my kids, honestly, I've thought I want them to know they are loved. And I yell, I scream. I'm a very intense personality, you know. Um, I'm a very imperfect parent. Let me just throw that out there. But I think that love, I, in my own life, I think love can make up for a myriad of shortcomings, right? Like if your kids know you love them, if they feel your love, and if you like, then I think I... I mean, they give me a lot of leash to do stupid things as a parent, as long as, as, long as they know they're loved. And so uh, that's kind of what I think I take that part from my mom, like, oh, I want my kids to know that. And I take the part from my dad. It's like, oh, I want to make sure I'm reliable. And that's kind of how it blends together with my family. That's amazing. That's cool. Yeah, I like how you, you know, unpack that, as you said. Yeah, that was really good. Well, John, uh, you, I mean, you, you glossed through this really amazing career that you've had really quickly. Maybe just tell the audience one of your biggest successes that you're most proud of, where it was a really great financial reward, and then one of your bombs that just blew up. Give us kind of that dichotomy there. You know, I would say... Okay, so I'd say that um, something that I'm proud of, right, and the team that did it, is uh, there's a, a company here in Utah called... Auto Savvy, they used to be formerly known as AutoSource, right? And uh, that that business was a very challenging business, right? Not the business model itself, like you know the the founder. It was a family-owned business, and I was a non-family member stepping into this business, and um, that's tough. That's a tricky a position times. to be in. Yeah, and and I kind of played a role a little bit of as an ombudsman. You know, you kind of there was a lot of lot to unpack uh, when it came to how the business was structured and how it was going to scale and how it was going to be funded. And, uh, you know, the business itself at the time, it was just looked like any other car dealership. 
you know, like it looked like. And car dealerships, a lot of people are like, oh, man, I can't wait to get into car sales. That's going to be a great opportunity, right? Cars, so there's a lot of stigmas associated with it. And I, when I first got involved in the business, it was like, it just looked like any other car dealership, but they specialized in a really unique segment of uh, inventory. That's the rebuilt, brand, restored, rebuilt, yeah. restored vehicles, right? Branded titles, and, it, and it's tricky. There's a lot of moving parts to something like that. And and actually, this is something that, in my own heart, is really interesting to me. Like recycling, and um, kind of like one man's trash, another man's treasure, has always fascinated me. Like mining itself is really interesting because you're taking this dirty ore and and you're putting it through these processes and making pure beautiful product right and so to me like it was always an intriguing concept like ooh, this in cars what's that like and and uh and it was really f i actually found myself kind of i just uh threw away whatever stereotypes i maybe had about it and said well what's it going to take to grow this business so let's just look at this as a business and um and we looked at it with the team and we really kind of approached saying how fast can we grow and what's this business maybe really worth right and it was kind of interesting because I was working on the business at the time, mostly in a consultant framework, but I saw like a huge potential. Like this seemed like it could be a really big company. And I remember kind of bringing it to the team and saying, I think we could grow this to be a really big company. Was that because there wasn't a lot of competitors at the time or what? There were some competitors, but what it's branded it title. Like when you say branded title, like... People just like shut their brains off and say, well, oh. and it's different in other states too, right? Like oh, yeah. every state treats them different. So every state treats them differently. It can be very, very challenging to move the title to be so you can drive the car after it's been totaled, right? So there's a lot of processes to get that figured out. And then the fund funding to finance a branded title vehicle. Like there's very few banks in the world that will fund a retail customer on a branded title vehicle because there's just a lot of concerns that go with that. So, so there's a lot of big, there was a lot of holes that really, to the credit of the founding team, like, you know, they figured out how to patch, how to like really show that the system could close. But when I was looking at the models, like I kind of pushed really hard. I said, I think we could grow this to be a really big business. And they're like, well, no, no, it's not really going to be worth much. It's like, you're not going to, it's, it's just a car dealership. Right. And mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know. And I went to the public markets and I looked at what CarMax was trading at and what some of these other big public car companies who had really figured it out we're doing. And I was like, man, these guys are trading like 22, 23 times EBITDA. Like that's, that's not a normal car dealership, right? If you can prove, if you could show that we have a segment that we've actually figured out so we can process and scale up, like this should be a really, this, we should be able to scale this business. You know? And is that because, I mean, I'm personally, I'm a fan of branded titles. We, yeah, most yeah. of our cars are branded titles, but um, is that is that because they were able to get the car so cheap because they were wrecked and damaged and get them repaired and then sell them cheaper to the public, but yet the margins were still there even though they were able to do that? Is that is that why there was such great uh, such a great EBITDA there, or what, what what was the difference? Well, the EBITDA in a normal environment, the EBITDA is the same as any place else, but it's the multiple of EBITDA, right? Mm. Because so the EBITDA was, is EBITDA is EBITDA. But if you're going to sell a normal, if you're a normal car dealership and you look like vanilla and anybody else is vanilla, you might sell at three times EBITDA. A, a really aggressive strategic buy might go as high as five times EBITDA or eight times EBITDA. If it's like strategic, like I want, I own all this region and I don't have yours yet, so I want that. So there are, um, there really are, when it comes to like what makes auto savvy unique is that they've actually 
been able to de-risk the branded title experience for customers. Like they literally, they they process they inspect every car more thorough. Like you might see like a 121 point inspection at the Lexus dealership, right? Like that inspection has nothing on the auto savvy inspection. Auto savvy will inspect the car two, three times. Like they're they've before they complete the purchase of the car. And then after the purchase of the car, they're still keeping tabs on everything that happens with that car to make sure that the customer is getting uh, the best quality and the best experience. And that the rebuilders that they're, that they're sourcing these cars from, that the people that they're working with, that they're giving that constant feedback into the system to continue streamlining and improving that process. So really, while it's a very fragmented um, industry, like nobody had figured out how to tie it together. So you, in some sense, in, in an industry as old as the car industry and in an industry as old as the insurance industry, which I think is probably, I think cars were getting totaled probably in the 1950s, sometime post-World War II. It was just like how they handled it. So this, this is a pretty old industry and this is a pretty old segment, but they really were- Not a lot of innovation. Not a lot of innovation. So Auto Savvy comes along and they kind of like don't take no for an answer and they figure out how to innovate in this space. And they really carved out kind of a blue ocean, right? So, so within this world, it's really hard to compete in this world. I'm just going to tell you that right now. It's really hard to compete. And, uh, but by, but when we looked at this, I so I was able to you know we we worked through it. We found uh, a way. I went I had an opportunity to buy in to the company as it was just kind of getting. We were just getting the second location off the ground, and uh, and that was, and then we really kind of just put the our pedal to metal and grew as fast as we could on our own capital because again it's hard to find capital to do that. And, uh, and today at the end of it, so this is, I first got involved with this company, um, nine, 10 years ago. And when it sold, we sold a, a majority interest to a private equity group out of Canada. Great group, very talented. Right. But, uh, and I can, I only speak positive things about them. They're really, it was really, and it was awesome what they've done. Uh, but you know, we, uh, they'll have, they'll open their 20th store this December so wow. this month. That's cool. And, uh, and there's another six or seven on the docket for next year. And, and we, they're, they're really kind of an anti-fragile company. If anybody's ever read the book Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, you ever read that book? I haven't. So I'm a super, I'm a bibliophile. I nerd out on that kind of stuff, but they're really a unique business where when the world turns upside down, when there's a lot of chaos introduced into the system, like they, actually they thrive so you can find anti-fragile businesses cranes are a good example of an anti anti-fragile business if there's an earthquake or a flood guess what crane business if your business wasn't wiped out right if your individual business wasn't wiped out the industry itself thrives because you need somebody to be able to move something heavy on top of something tall right so a, a crane if if there's high growth in in an industry like if your construction is going bangers like again uh that can the crane world um, cranes are needed. Like they're, they're, they benefit from a chaotic market. Uh, auto savvy is kind of like that. When there's a big hailstorm or a flood somewhere, you know, I, that's inventory, right? That's stock. <laughs> when, Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Another right. natural disaster. We're going to have lots of inventory. Yeah. Well, when the, when the market is down, like, let's say like, you know, we're, we're, uh, kind of on the eve or well into a recession, depending on how people look at it. Um, but this is actually a type of market where people still want to drive a good car, but they would like to spend less on that car. Yeah. Right. 
And so the brands still hold their same value, but people are willing to look more into a branded title. So, so this is really the type of environment where auto savvy captures market share. It may not make more money, right? But it's going to capture market share while other people are receding. And you'll see that in the industry. There are several large national um, automotive companies that have recently filed bankruptcy or are really trimming back pieces because it's been it's hard right now in the automotive industry. But I guess for me that was that was a fun win. I got to see a big transaction from the inside out. I got to hold on to it for the second bite. And I still get to interact occasionally with their teams on some of their specialty projects where we uh, where we really get to look at, you know, some kind of really fun software strategic elements that they're that they're developing. So do you still maintain some ownership in that? I do. I saw it a little awesome. bit in that company. And cool. so it's really fun to see it all come together. So like that to me was a really fun one. That's cool. Um, I'd say that a uh, really tough, a challenging the business that I had was, um, this was, I don't remember the year exactly. It was probably, let's say, 10 years ago-ish, right? We were, I was working on a consulting company where we were specializing in helping businesses to penetrate new markets. It was like, go to a business, find out their hardest challenges, and then I would go back with the little tiger team, and we would find experts that knew what they were doing and we'd bring those guys in and then we'd get a, a team to really execute and prove out the concept before and then we try to transition it into a business right and that business actually was growing gangbusters it wasn't something you'd expect a lot of young people to do consulting that's not typically it's usually a, a bald or a gray-haired person's job to be a consultant right and that's back when i had hair <laughs> but I, when we were doing this consulting, like uh, we worked really hard. We grew a big book of business. I worked really closely with an, um, a number of super angels uh, throughout Utah that were just invested in lots of different businesses. And, uh, and it's, it was kind of cool because it was had about at our peak, we had about 60 analysts that were on our team. And I was probably working on 30 different projects any given time. And the, the hardest problems would always and end up on my desk to like help help everybody come together and figure out the the solution, whatever the elegant answer could be, right? So I learned a lot from it. We worked really hard, and um, we kind of got a little bit uh, became victims of our own success a little bit. We were having so much success with our clients that I was like, man, we should just you know we should maybe start our own companies different types of companies, th things that didn't compete with any customers. Obviously, we're never going to do that. But you'd see needs in the business, uh, services that people were getting, say, well, let's build a company that does that need. You know, let's build a company that does that need. And so I remember in, in one year, we started like four companies, hired four CEOs, hired, helped them hire their little team, used our wow. team to kind of like accelerate the growth, right? Uh, we were just like punching it with, all of our teams. And we didn't, the thing that was tricky is it's really nice because you get your velocity of your own capital because you was, if your teams are, anyways, you can kind of reuse your money lots of different times. And so it's, it's great for velocity of capital, but it's actually really bad because it doesn't show you that you're maybe too dependent on your main business to drive everything. And what happens if something happened to that main business, right? So one of our anchor customers, uh, anchor clients in that consulting business that we were doing lots of money with, uh, every month, decided to move a different direction. And so all of a sudden I found the main engine that was running, that was actually providing payroll in some sense and, and uh, strategy and direction for these four companies, like 
was suffering. This business was like really in trouble. And these four companies had their own problems. All, every company has a problem. Like it's like a baby, right? Every new company is like needs fed all the time. And it's screaming all the time and it never appreciates what you're doing for it. It's so, a good analogy. So I remember one of our CEOs um, had a really big personal thing happen in their lives and this kind of backed out. And then the, that particular company was just come up to like, it was supposed to be its big trade show and it's big kind of coming out to make a lot of money. And, and we started just throwing, and it started wobbling. This company was wobbling. The CEO had to step out and he was like, man, what are we going to do to put this back together? So we started throwing good money after bad money. And it was in, it was like, it took a, we held it up. We held the dike really well, but I would tell you that after like, I don't know, probably a year of trying to like juggle everything, like it finally just fell apart and the businesses were, fell apart. They mm. just couldn't work. And so it was like a, after that moment, you're like, man, I spent six years building this business. I spent one year burning it to the ground. And, and it was, and it felt, it hurt so bad because it was all people you care about. You love your people you work with you love your partners you're like trying so hard to make it work and it just all crashes down i remember thinking man i'm like never gonna do business again. i can't imagine who's gonna want to do who's gonna want to partner with me if i if these things don't work you know like i just burned four businesses to the ground and my main <laughs> business like um i remember thinking like i'm never gonna have fun again you know i was like it just kind of felt like this was just so hard but would you say john in that moment that you learned I mean, we hear a lot on the podcast that you learn more in those moments, in those failure moments or those difficult moments than sometimes you do in the successful moments. Would you say that's true in that case or, or not? I think you learn more about yourself. Mm. Um, I think you learn more about yourself in those moments. Like you learn the things that matter the most. You learn that not giving up is the most important and that you learn the value of friendship and sacrifice and you learn that what you're capable of right yeah. i don't i mean i don't know i thought sell you know helping to construct a, a giant deal and seeing all the pieces you learn a lot in giant successful deals as well right? yeah i wonder if those those failure moments are just more poignant and they're easier to like pinpoint the actual lesson that you learned whereas like the successful things you just kind of play it off as like, hey, there's a lot of pieces that fell into place or whatever. And those yeah. those lessons where you have a failure, you can kind of pinpoint that one thing that went wrong that led to kind of the downfall. or whatever. And maybe it's much more embedded in your heart. Yeah, like, oh, more, more painful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. No, I think those are, I know those are solid points, you know, like, but the failure is definitely, whew, man, that's a, the thing that's interesting about entrepreneurship is I think sometimes you're like on top of the mountain and it feels amazing. And then like, it could be no time at all. The mountain is on top of you. Like 10 just, minutes later. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> You're like, where'd this mountain come from? I came, I thought yeah. it was on top a second ago. So, so, uh, I played baseball growing up and I got hit by the, by the pitcher all the time. You know, it just happens. Oh, so what gave you the courage after that moment to get back up to bat? Well, that's a great question. I, I, I would say that, uh, they say that, you know, that necessity is maybe the mother of all creation, right? So I, I absolutely needed to get out. I needed to put all the pieces together and I had, I had to go rebuild parts of my life. You know, like I, I, I needed it for me. 
I needed it for my family. I think at the time I probably had four kids. Um, and, and it was like, I don't know, man, like, I don't know what you do. You just put your <laughs> boots on and go to work, you know? So we pulled it out and it was lots of hard times. You just have to put one foot in front of the other and not give up. And I did have a few moments. I did have these, I remember, I remember this distinctive moment. I was painting the bathroom in my house after all this had happened and kind of thinking like, I am just like, never like, what, what have I done? You know, like, <laughs> what am I doing? Like, uh, don't even know where to start. Like we're living off of savings right now. And we're like <laughs> trying to figure it out. And, and I remember like having this kind of distinct impression in my heart. It's like, John, it's going to be okay. Don't be so dramatic. Right. Like you're going to, and I felt like I almost had this premonition of places I would go and people I would meet that there's another life beyond this. Like, why are you being so dramatic? Like, you can do this again, you know? And so for me, and I don't know, you know, like, where that came from, per se. Like, I have my own feelings where it came from. But but it was like there, I would be lying if I didn't say something gave me hope, right? And I just took that hope, like a little ember, and you blow on it, and you blow on it. And it was really from that experience I was, that I had uh, just coming out of this really hard moment and saying, man, I wonder... How is it gonna happen again, right? Like, and so I got to start looking, and I and I met with um, a previous person I had worked with in the past. I love this person's name is Casey Pettengill. Uh, he started a company called Red Pepper Software, and at the time there were four people big. And I met with Casey. I haven't just come out of like this kind of train wreck experience, and like, man, who wants to? I don't know. I talked with Casey very openly. I'm a very transparent kind of personality. And when talking with Casey, I was like, I see what you're doing in your little business. There was four people in his company at the time. I said, I, I love you. You're the way you, you're honest, you're open, you're, you're a hard worker. Like if I can help you grow your business, I'd love an opportunity to maybe partner in this. And I don't want to cre recreate, I don't want to jump into a bad partnership. I mean, partnerships will, a bad partnership is not worth its pain on your soul, right? Uh, so I was like, I don't want to do a bad partnership. So let's go ahead and let me just kind of work with you for a year. And if you like working with me and I can actually help grow the business here, right? Um, then I want to be able to exercise that option and, and buy in as a full partner in this company. And if not, if you don't like working with me, that's fine. I appreciate it. I understand. You got a year worth with of myself work. sometimes, yeah. right? If you, then I've, I've, I've given it for a year and we'll see what happens. And um, you know, I got, I'll give, I gotta give Casey a ton of credit. He is such a good human being and he is so hardworking and he's so open. Like he's really got a, a very open heart and open mind. So we, I jumped in, I put my shoulder to the wheel and we just, again, I did what I'm comfortable with, what I know how to do. And I just grew that as hard as I could in my own way with the constraints we had in the, in the business. And by the end of the year, I think we were probably up to about like 22 employees and we had grown our uh, we had grown top line, we had grown bottom line, we had started solving the problems that were there, and it was like actually starting to be really fun, and it was great. And so, um, and so, you know, Red Pepper really kind of grew and took off, and and uh, and as we worked on that business, we met a lot of other we had a lot of other opportunities that came up, which we could decide to pursue or not pursue, and how to do that. But uh, you know, I'm going to give a lot of credit to to Casey and. I think his faith in me, his like trust in me kind of helped me in a time when I was like trying so hard, like, but you know, what do you do? You know, like if it's not, doesn't feel like it's working. And 
And that gave me a lot of courage and a lot of fun. It was always, and it's fun to see when you do work on something and you see it work. That is so encouraging. And so, uh, I don't know, I'm probably an adrenaline junkie in that regard. Like if I feel like I'm doing something that's working in a business, I just want more of that feeling. <laughs> I can definitely say you're an adrenaline junkie. Here's, <laughs> here's John in Peru, and, we, and he's he's trying his hardest to find us somewhere to rent dirt bikes so we can go dirt biking we around Cusco, and we never so could sad. find it. But You know, it would have been great to go up in, in the neighborhoods right there in yeah, Cusco. Yeah, that would have been so fun. I'm yeah. sure my wife was glad we did. <laughs> she was supportive nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think <clears throat> one thing I took away from from that story, I think, is a, a lot of entrepreneurs are just that in, eternal optimist. And so I think that there's probably listeners out there that don't kind of identify as an eternal optimist and will take a lot of value from that story of you being in that moment of like, Ugh, do I have the courage to get back up to bat again? And you didn't know if you did. And so there could be people that are at that moment right now where they're like, I don't know if I have the courage to get back up to bat again. And so, you know, they could, they could be in that moment where they're trying to make that decision and, and draw some strength from that. So I think it's really valuable that you, you know, that you can look back and say, I, I was at that moment where it was like, I don't know. I don't know if I can yeah. move forward. And, and you kind of drew strength from something outside yourself to, to get back up to great back advice. No, I think Appreciate that's that. great advice. I think that's a great point. And I, I think I probably share one more story along the, those lines, right? Because when I was doing that little book company, the, um, the social venture where you're reselling, recycling, donating the books, it was really hard. I got into all sorts of debt. I like did this credit card blitz. Back in the day, the credit cards didn't communicate very well with each other of like how much credit limit they were giving you. And I learned about this in one of the entrepreneur lecture series I was in. And I was like, dude, I'm going to do that. So we blitzed a bunch of credit cards, me and my business partner, and we <laughs> found ourselves with like $40,000 of credit line and ability to transfer the limit. And I was like, I had no income. Like I had no nothing, but I was like, I'm going to try this. And uh, that was a hard business. That business, whew, lots of lessons in that business on all sorts of levels, like learning things, learning about yourself and your others, and also how to build a business. But it was interesting because like, I really kind of reached this point where I was like, maybe I, I had friends who were getting jobs at like really nice consulting firms or nice uh, whatever companies they were going for. They were making plenty of money and looked like they were living this sexy, amazing lifestyle. I was like, I maybe I should do that. You know, I was like talking to my wife. I'm like, maybe I should go get a job somewhere. I've had some leads and some opportunities. And uh, it was around this time I kind of met up with Greg Warnock. And uh, I don't know if you guys have met no, Greg very well. Greg's, Greg is so. a powerhouse. Okay, Greg is with he's uh he does Mercado right now, but he, oh yeah, he's uh he's a powerhouse, and and he was out recruiting like the best of the best potential entrepreneurs. He had started this program called the Junto. They were bringing people in where they could test their metal, and if you were selected as one of the entrepreneurs, then they would invest in whatever business you were going to start, and they'd kind of provide that. And there's actually a lot of cool companies came out of Greg's Junto. And so I was just kind of at this point where I was running this little book company and I'm like, you know, having our babies with my wife and we're just like, I'm like trying to figure out how to dig myself out of this giant hole I had because it was losing money like about three grand a month at the time. And I was like, man, I want to, I want to see if I'm an entrepreneur maybe, you know, like, I don't <laughs> know, like this sounds like a cool program. So I just kind of on a whim, like one of these moments, like, am I an entrepreneur? I don't know. I fill out their form and. You know, I have a chance to meet with Greg and meet with um, Joe and um, meet with our team. And it was it was like an interesting experience for me because I was like, I'm like juggling real life. Like everything just felt like 
real life to me. I didn't, the sexiness of entrepreneurship had worn off by this point. It wasn't like, um, there was this amazing opportunity, like, Oh, wouldn't it be amazing, uh, to have one of these horrible experiences an entrepreneur talks about, like where they're on their last penny and they, this customer comes in and swoops them up and saves the day and they make a million dollars. Right. Like I had lived on those thoughts of what entrepreneurship was. And I was, I was over that. I was like, man, this is hard. I'm like working 60 hours a week. I'm trying to be a good dad. I'm trying to be a good husband. And I feel like I'm failing on everything. And then this entrepreneurship thing comes up and I'm like in the classes and I'm like listening and, and they had these challenges every day after the class, you know, like go and see if you can get a check from somebody for $5,000 for any business idea. Right. And I was like, okay, that's all right. So we go and I, like calling people up and I come to class with a check, you know, and nobody else came to class with a check. And I was like, that's weird guys. You just got to go ask some people. <laughs> it's easy. You yeah. know, I, it wasn't easy, but I was like, you just, it just felt like the grind is like not fun, but you just do it. And then, then another challenge like, Oh, we got this, this little VoIP system. We got to, who can go sell the VoIP system? Well, I go and I'm like between the next week of class, I sell a VoIP system or two, right? Nothing special. Just like, Mostly like I was asking favors from people all the time, right? And uh, I come to class and like maybe one other guy had sold a web system. And I was like, oh, what about doing this challenge or that challenge? And, and again, it's not like, I think to me what it was kind of was the aha moment for me. It was like, if you just, like a lot of people had a lot of excuses why they weren't going to do something. And I'm, the people in that room were way more talented than me. And they were better looking than me. And they seemed to come from more money and more prestige and more, class in some sense to me right like i was just i'm okay i can call it that way <laughs> right like i and uh but if you but i would keep doing really well on these challenges and so for me it was like this for anybody who's out there who's really like man am i an entrepreneur or not it's like don't worry about the validation from other people it was like i think what was the aha moment for me wasn't the validation from other people saying you're an entrepreneur it was me actually just seeing that i could do whatever challenges were coming up and that seemed to be an indicator of entrepreneurship, right? It seemed to be an indicator of somebody who could do something. And so I think my, so if you're out there and you're not feeling like a million bucks and you're not feeling like you're awesome and successful, I'm just saying, if you put your mind to something, can you achieve that thing? And don't make it not some crazy vision board thing, you know, like, oh, the Ferraris and the big houses or whatever. Like, <laughs> like if you set a goal, yeah, if you set a goal, that little goal, do you hit that little goal? Because if you do, I'm telling you, you got, you got the capacity to do great things. And so that's, so to kind of build on that point, I'm probably beat the dead horse too much, but I would say run with that, run hard, do the next little thing, just do the next little thing and actually do it. And if you do it, that means something because most people don't. I love that. That's cool. Yep. I wanted to buy a blob when I was younger, like after college, I told my wife, I wanted to buy one of those, you know, you jump off the platform and launch people into the water. Oh, you know, oh yeah. Out. Yeah. I got it. Kelsey said when I, Make a hundred thousand dollars. I could buy a blob. So, so now he's got two of them in his garage. <laughs> no, no, but uh, yeah. So anyway, so that was a goal that I had. But then when that goal we achieved that goal, I didn't want a blob anymore. That's totally, that's <laughs> totally cool. I, I love those those kind of stories. Well, John, this has been super fun. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah. What's What's next for Red List, and and then where can people find you? Yeah. So I would say check us out at getredlist.com. And uh, I think what's next for us is we just finished a tranche of funding and, you know, we are, we just about doubled last year. So in the year 22, we doubled over 21 and I think we're going to double again in uh, 23. 
and we're putting all the pieces together for that. And um, I think we're, it's, we just close our round and it's, as you see people around you, like tech companies, values are dropping by 60%, 70%. I've seen some 80 percenters yeah. out there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've been really blessed. So for us, it was mostly a flat round, but we'll still, that, we'll take that as a win right now and uh and just put our shoulders to the wheel and grind along until we kind of keep hitting those key milestones and then and then i think it's just building you know let's build that company to have a i think i want to have a, a great harvest for the team and then uh you know i like solving big problems with fun teams so that's kind of what i want to keep doing cool it's a great win for your family too yeah it'd be fun eight kiddos right yes yeah, so we got seven that are here with and number one, eight on the way. one on the way in awesome. uh, in March, like you're saying. So, so awesome. congratulations! Thank you so very cool. much. That's that's my claim to fame. Is I married Lenita and our our kids are still alive. That was <laughs> that's what we're doing so far. So great, cool. Thank you. It, it was a pleasure. Anything else, John? That I mean, you've got the mic now for a couple of seconds. Anything else you wanted to say to the audience that you didn't get a chance to say? Uh, no, I I would. I probably I would probably give a shout out to uh, Revroad though. Okay. I'd say like for anybody. We appreciate that. You no, know, if you're like again, if you're on this entrepreneurial journey and you want to know more about your role as an entrepreneur, what you do, like Revroad wasn't around when uh, I started Redlist, you know, and and I met uh, the team over Red. We were. I just Red don't Road. think we were connected at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, uh, I met. I I'm, I just crossed paths with. Darren, in the earliest days over when at the Responsibility Foundation, right? Oh, so, like, okay, I okay. honestly, like, didn't know Rev Road existed till three years ago. Yeah. And that's when I had the chance to be a, a limited partner with you guys. Yeah. But I, I think that what you're doing is awesome. I think there's lots and lots of learning that's going to go on on all sorts of levels as the company scales and evolves. But I think that anybody that comes through that program with an open heart and mind is going to be dramatically accelerated in their journey. And Life is really short in some sense, and it takes a lot of time and energy to do a venture. Yeah. Um, I met people who do them quick. I haven't found that, like, if I'm actually in the operation seat, it takes, I mean, we're talking, this is a 5, 10, 15-year journey for a business, right? Mm -hmm. So if you can accelerate that and get more of your life back and get more uh, stuff going, I think RevRoad is a great place for that, and I want to encourage that. Thank you. We appreciate that. It's almost a, it's almost the inspiration for a new tagline. Rev Road, get your life back. Yeah. <laughs> something like it's that. There, I'm telling you, there's something real about it. And yeah. I think the stuff the central bank is doing is actually really cool. Uh, they're pushing the envelope for traditional banking. And so <laughs> you could say that again. Yeah. And uh, really and cool. Entrepreneurs, again, that stuff that was that never even closely existed when I was starting my first venture, right? So, and I would have I would have signed on the dotted line for all sorts of stuff, but nobody would even give it to me. I understand why. Also, at that point, okay. So, but you, you were the rascal, right? The we rascal, already learned that right. from your mom. mom. You had fourteen that. credit cards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. right. About four. It's like against four. But, uh, um, but yeah. So I say. So I think what Central Bank is doing is really cool too. So I guess um, my shout out would be like, there's so many resources out there, and for anybody who's like interested or considering it, like stop dreaming about it and just do it. If you can think, if you can dream or think you can, begin it, right? Boldness has power and majesty in it, I think is the, the supposed Goethe quote. But just cool. do it. Like, just call them up. Check out their website. Go talk to them. Uh, I, I honestly think it, you won't, it'll be an education that would be worth the time. Cool. 
Love it. John, thanks again. Good to have you. No, thanks. Good luck with everything. Yeah, likewise. The Midnight Founders Podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. And Rev Road is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.